This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me as always is the president of the Reformed African American Network, Jamar Tisby. Jamar, how's it going? I'm feeling good, man. Year one of grad school is in the books, and I now know just enough to be dangerous. (laughs) one year down congratulations brother many miles before i sleep but it feels good feels good still sinking in but uh yeah life is good and i got a finger spinner so got that Uh for me Uh oh here we go don't be doing it during the podcast (laughs) no promises i'll just yeah (laughs) (laughs) he's gonna put on mute and just do it (laughs) but um and speaking of education we have received a ton of positive feedback from people who heard the previous episode on racism in Christian schools. We appreciate that feedback so much. Thank you for responding, sharing your thoughts and experiences. Specifically, thanks to Jamie and Amanda, Cynthia, Jake, Joel, Tara, so many more. And in this group are people of color who have verified the experiences that we talked about. And also there are parents and siblings represented here that have made some choices surrounding education or started some conversations as a result of the podcast. And thank you all so much for the overwhelmingly positive response. And I don't know about you, Jamar, but I wasn't expecting such a a, a positive response. Yeah, you never quite know when you pick a topic and and you put a podcast out there how folks will receive it. But Christians in public education and race in the mix of that, well, Christians in education, really, and race in the mix in that, I think that kind of hits everybody's different experiences, whether you're a parent and you're thinking about where to send your kids, whether you're a student in one of these schools, uh, whether you're just thinking through it as, as a believer. So, yeah, I'm glad it found resonance. Um, again, a lot of people, like you said, verified the experience. And shout out to all the folks who are who are using this podcast and others as conversation starters. You know, we, uh, Tyler and I, we, we, we kind of put out there honest conversations, but it's really exciting for us to hear when you take these conversations, say, hey, listen to this, and then follow up with a conversation. And then some substantive change can maybe come out of that. So, you're on the front lines and you're doing good work. Be encouraged. Keep at it. And also, speaking of our listeners, we want to announce that June will be Listener Appreciation Month here at PTM. So we'll be doing some special giveaways for you, our listeners, because we really do appreciate you. Um, I, you know, we might do some AMAs, some mailbags. I, I don't know what we'll do. We might. I don't know. You guys tell us what you want. We might do a little bet. And then the loser wears rompers. <laughs> Since Jamar's been talking about rompers, we might do that. Just look, do a little bet. Loser wears I a romper. I haven't worn them, but they look real comfortable. Yeah, see, uh, tell me how that turns out. But uh, you know, low key, and, and we'll get to the we're we gonna get to the topic. But low key, a couple of them look dope. A couple of them look dope. Now, not the ones that you posted on your wall, but I'm talking about the ones on like the fashion runways. I'm like, okay, low key. Okay, okay. all right, I could okay. Rock that. Yeah, we'll, but the we'll... other ones, I think them dudes are trying to be silly. 
So I'm not with that. But as a serious fashion trend, if it's not showing too much leg, hey, man, yo, it's Florida, bro. Not the 1980s basketball short length. Nah, I can't do that one. I can't do that one. But, you know, maybe some. Anyway, so as we, as as Paul would say, you know, we thank God upon every remembrance of you, our listeners. Thank you so much for your encouraging words. And they seem to be very timely for us as well. Now, for today's episode, Jamar, we have two main topics that we want to discuss. And the first is a college graduation firestorm. Recently, Bethune-Cookman University held their commencement exercises for the class of 2017. And it was not the typical boring graduation experience because the administration decided to invite our current Secretary of Education in the United States, Betsy DeVos. And they invited her to give a commencement address and also to receive an honorary degree. Now, Bethune-Cookman University is an HBCU, Historically Black College and University, founded by Mary McLeod Bethune, who is a civil rights activist, educator, uh, stateswoman, and she founded the college in 1904 in Daytona, Florida. Now, much has been made about Betsy DeVos and her relationship with HBCUs. Uh, she invoked HBCUs as pioneers of school choice in one of her early remarks. They also had a meeting with HBCU presidents, many of whom came back and said that the meeting with the Trump administration was less than stellar, was less than what they expected. So hearing this, Jamar, what was your response to their decision to have her as a commencement address speaker? Many layers to this onion of an event. Um, you know, the way that most people are trying to justify her presence there is sort of like academic freedom of speech, that mm -hmm. at a college or a university, this should be a place where, where lots of ideas are presented and students can critically analyze them and decide for themselves what holds water. I completely agree with that, that... Um, what should characterize a university experience is exposure to a diversity of ideas. And, and, and that's part of sort of the academic mission and goal in higher education, but not at a commencement. That was my view. Like, this is not the occasion to do that because this isn't a lecture. This isn't a classroom. This isn't a forum where Betsy DeVos gets to sort of present her uh, view of education and students get to respond or think through it. This was a commencement speech. And there's a sense where this is about us as the students. Mm -hmm. And the students were against it. Many alumni were against it. And so I thought it was a very unwise decision for the leaders and administrators at Bethune-Cookman, knowing all of this, to proceed mm -hmm. with her as a guest. I thought it was very... Uh, unappreciative and uh, sort of ignored the the legitimate concerns of the students. You know, it's it's interesting because one of my friends is a Bethune alum, and I actually found out about Betsy DeVos speaking because he was up in Pensacola visiting his parents um, the weekend before she spoke, and so he actually mentioned it to me. He said, "Yeah, you know, um, she's going to be speaking at at the commencement." I said, "What, really?" And he said, "Man, we've been trying to block it um, for <laughs> weeks now." He said, "But it just..." I don't know. I think they're just going to go through with it. And, you know, the students responded very powerfully and, and with very strong resistance outside of first gathering thousands of signatures in opposition. They also booed and they stood up and turned their back to her. I think some of that was organized by people who wanted to protest and then others of that was spontaneous. And it seems to me, Jamar, that 
the students weren't so much protesting her as they were protesting the administration for allowing her to speak and for what she represents as well. Um, there's also the the sensitive connection with the fact that Betsy DeVos has been portrayed in like with Ruby Bridges, the 1964 painting, The Problem We All mm. Live With. You mm. know, So it's, it's also that connection as well that I think is making people very sensitive, not just her comments and the administration that she represents, but then also the comparisons that people have made with civil rights uh, activists or with a certain type of disenfranchisement. So do you believe that the response to the decision was a mature response by the students or was, you know, some people have said that that's uh, immaturity, it's um, trying to attack civility and attack free thought and idea. What do you think about the students' response and, you know, some of the, <laughs> the strong resistance that they put up? I think the students were very clear-headed in their objections to DeVos. So going back to your point about students really being more upset at the university, there was one article on NBC Black that covered this, and they quoted a student who was there who was graduating, and she said, it's more so the university we have an issue with, at the fact that they brought her to our celebration. And she goes on to say, it wasn't mm. time for them to make a political decision on our behalf. It was a time to celebrate us. So like we've said, this commencement, is this the occasion to have a very controversial political figure come and speak? And again, her topic wasn't laying out her philosophy of education and so that the students could engage with those ideas. But I think the students very legitimately said this should be about who we are, about our experience here, and about our future going forward. And why would you bring this speaker in against our clear objections and that of many others? This is not the first time <laughs> Betsy DeVos has, yeah. has faced opposition uh, at places where she's spoken, particularly with African-American audiences. And you have to bear in mind, she's an official of the Trump administration, which comes with all sorts of its own kind of baggage. So right. all of that's Absolutely. going into it. And then you get the protests, which to me, it, it's very tricky, right? Because I wasn't there. And so, you know, I don't know the degree to which this was planned. It certainly had an element, it seemed to me, of some good forethought in it. I don't know if there was just some sort of spontaneous kind of protests. I don't know if there were clear leaders. I don't know if there were clear demands that, that were presented to administrators. All of that goes into it. None of that negates, I think, the legitimate concerns of the students or should push us to easy um, evaluations of protests. Right. I think it should right. be I think we should be very careful uh, to judge the actions of protesters as inappropriate. You know, I'm 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 not I'm talking not violence or anything like that, but sure. but yeah, nonviolent protests yeah, and nonviolent protests. I think we need to be very careful because protests are never comfortable for some group of people, right? There's always going to be some group of people that says you're going too far or you're being too extreme, or you're being too disrespectful. And you have to really carefully look at what perspective you're coming from because mm -hmm. it's your problem with the protest or is your problem with the principle? And you agree with the right. principle and so you disagree with the protest, you know, all that stuff. What what did you think of the, the, the way they protested? Well, I think the first thing to keep in mind is that this is an HBCU. So... The history of the institution is one of the cultivation of activism and resistance. So the very organization was founded as a place to cultivate a mind, a heart, and a body 
that educates and informs students on how to live in the world with a particular black identity. So it follows that there will be a remnant of resistance that exists in an institution that was founded upon that or was yeah, founded with that, at least in mind. I mean, that that connection doesn't surprise me at all in any way. But I think the second thing I would say is we have to be honest about our reaction on two main fronts. And the first is the reality that our view of acceptable resistance has been colonized and privileged. So we tend to calibrate our response to injustice based upon the comfort level of the majority culture or the comfort level of those who are in power. And I think that's very dangerous. And it's dangerous because of the second area that I would kind of point out, which is that all resistance is offensive in some way. If you talk about saying things on social media or if you wear certain clothing that is conscious of your ethnic identity or if you do sit-ins at white-only lunch counters, if you protest unjust laws, if you walk in the streets and, and block cars, no matter what it is, offensive, like resistance is offensive. It, it doesn't matter what it is or how you do it. It's going to be offensive to someone. But if we calibrate what we do based upon the comfort level of the majority, we'll never be free and we'll never truly have dignity. And I'm not saying that we should be disrespectful or offensive for offensive sake, but I do think that we have to take a step back and acknowledge the reality that our view of resistance is clouded by a majority culture that might misrepresent us, might talk about us on popular news networks might talk, not invite us back to speak at churches, might, you know, all these other things that go into it. And we can't calibrate based upon their comfort level. We have to calibrate based upon what's true. Yeah. And we can't, we can't miss the clear connections to the civil rights movement in the 20th century, uh, especially with Christians. So many white evangelicals would look at uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and his philosophy of nonviolent resistance and say that, whatever he did uh, was too extreme, whether that was a, a boycott, uh, whether that was arranging um, transportation during the Montgomery bus boycott, whether that was marching, um, whatever it was, it was always too extreme for the group that was most comfortable. And so that's what we have to be cautious of even today is are we objecting to the manner of protest because it somehow disrupts our comfort or threatens to do so? Hmm. Um, is it genuinely unrighteous and unjust, the, the kind of protest that's happening? Or are we actually looking at, at the principle, um, at, at the objection that people are lodging? Because a protest is simply a, 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 a public lodging of a complaint. Um, right. as well as a resistance to, to whatever is happening. And so I think oftentimes we jump to evaluating the manner of protest and the tone of it, and we leap right over the actual issue being protested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're more offended at the, the response to injustice than injustice itself. Right. right. Now, two years ago, it's interesting you mentioned the civil rights movement. I had the pleasure of delivering the invocation at the unveiling of a local historical marker for Ooh. the lunch counter sit-ins in my city wow. in uh, 1960. And it was something that, you know, I just gotten married a week before and they asked me to do it earlier that month. And I think due to the fact that I was getting married and <laughs> was adjusting to life, I didn't really take it in. 
you know, I posted about it and, but I didn't really take it in like how powerful of a moment that was. And in Pensacola at the same time that there were sit-ins being organized in Alabama and in other places in the South, there were also sit-ins at white only lunch counters that were organized by Christians. And one of them was the late Reverend William Dobbins. He was basically the leader of the organization that put together these sit-ins. And it was crazy talking to people who were here and they told their stories and they said that they were called the N-word and they were called monkeys. And they also witnessed officers who would pick up uh, items within the store and put them in their jackets or put them in their back pockets and then arrest them for shoplifting. And uh, they were knived, they were sprayed with insecticide, burned with cigarettes, all these things. And and when I was sitting back and and listening to their stories, when I was hearing them articulate their experience, I thought, man, what if the members of the civil rights movement thought it was too provocative to have dignity? You know, what if they thought it was too offensive to request the rights that they were owed? And, and, and people say all the time, well, we're not dealing with the civil rights movement. We are dealing with dignity and freedom. And those things are constantly under assault. They didn't just stop being under assault because Martin Luther King had a dream. And so how do we as the people of God respond? And I think we can hold these, these things in tension, that yes, we are called to respect and civility, but we, the respect and civility that we show is not determined by people who don't want to hear the truth in the first place. So hearing you talk about the civil rights movement just reminded me of that story. And uh, mm-hmm. we are still in the movement. The movement has not stopped um, just because it's 2017. I'll add one last thing. Most folks go through the typical channels first before doing some sort of oh, public absolutely. protest. Absolutely. And so that's the case with the Bethune-Cookman students. As you mentioned, they gathered literally thousands of signatures, dropped them off in the administration's office, and, and, and made it clear from the front end, well before the actual event, that they were not in agreement with this choice. And so they had gone through other manners of, of making their concerns known. The same with the civil rights movement. Right. Uh, they Activists had, had long been trying to work through the courts before anything public occurred. And in fact, uh, after Brown v. Board in, in 1954, the backlash was so extreme that 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 you started to the first <laughs> protests weren't from people agitating for integration. They were from people right. who were resisting integration. Right. And then yep. Yep. from there, uh, there was much patience, especially if you look at schools, there was much patience with this phrase, quote, all deliberate speed as African-Americans tried to work within the system to get their kids in better resource schools so their kids could mm-hmm. get a great education. And, and when that didn't work, that's when some of the protests started. Uh, even the Montgomery bus boycott, which was sort of the formal start of the civil rights movement in the 20th century, at first what they were requesting was, was not even for full integration. They just said, listen, if the white section is not uh, fully full yet, let black folks sit Right. sit there and folks can still be separate but let's not just be stupid about this and right. and they were just asking for what other cities were already doing other segregated cities were already doing and when that didn't work that's when the whole boycott began and everything else 
So Yeah, that's such good history. And speaking of history, the second topic on the table today is the current stir surrounding Confederate monuments. Now, there's a resurgence of petitions and also counter petitions to remove monuments of war heroes of the Confederacy that represent the South. So people like General Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, others, and Jamar, this is your wheelhouse. (laughs) And before you respond and talk about the historical considerations at hand, I do want to read a comment by former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice, who is also a black woman. And she was asked on Fox News, um, of all places, she was asked on Fox News what she thinks of the Confederate monument removal. And she said this, she said, and I quote, when you start wiping out your history, sanitizing your history to make you feel better, it's a bad thing. I'm a firm believer in keep your history before you. And so I don't actually want to rename things that were named for slave owners. I want us to have to look at the names and recognize what they did and be able to tell our kids what they did and for them to have a sense of their own history. Now, from your perspective, is that what's going on, Jamar? Is it a sanitizing of history? What, what do you think about the Confederate monument removal? Well, I really take umbrage with the the first part of what she said, where she basically boiled down the motivation for all of these, um, you know, folks wanting to remove the the Confederate monuments as an issue of wanting to quote feel better. Uh, I think that's that. that yeah, that seemed really nebulous. I was like, what do you what do you mean by that? <laughs> uh, it, it's sort of insulting. I mean, it's just like, oh, you're too sensitive. Now you want these statues to come down. No, there's there's much more to it. Which gets to your question, right? Is is what do I think of her her point? Is this sort of sanitizing the past? I don't think so at all. Um, number one, uh, the Civil War is one of the most studied topics in U.S. history. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of books about the Civil War. There are museums dedicated to it. So it's not sanitizing history, nor is it erasing history. To remove a monument from a public square or a park or something is, is not doing anything to, to uh, erase the memory of the Civil War, the Union, or the right. Confederacy. Now, I do think that it, it, there's, there's some differences, right? So a, a monument is erected specifically to honor that person Mm -hmm. or that event. And it stands there as a symbol of who that person was or what happened there. And so so they're very closely aligned, the symbol and the actual event or individual. A building or something like that is a little bit different in the sense that a building named after a slave owner or a rabid segregationist or something, that's not great. But a building usually has another purpose, right? It's you know on a on a university campus, it's 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 the business building right. or the physics building, or something or, like you that. know. Yes, exactly. So there's some other association and connotation with. I think you deal or you have the liberty to deal with those differently. So, for instance, where I go at the University of Mississippi, they have what they call a contextualization committee, and so the reality is. Uh, that particular hmm. university and the state it's in is so tied up with racism and segregation that to rename everything not only was would be cumbersome, but it would be uh, erasing parts of history or, or, or sanitizing it unnecessarily. And so what they're doing is instead of renaming everything, now they are renaming some things, so let me make that clear, but in, instead right. of renaming everything, they're also putting up plaques that give context that say this person was a slaveholder. We didn't rename it because we want this always to be um, 
part of how we understand the past and as a symbol that we're moving beyond it. The very presence of this context is a symbol of that. So I don't think you need to deal with all these situations the exact same way, but in the case of Confederate monuments, my opinion, take them down. Yeah, it's interesting because there was a rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, recently of white men with torches outside of a monument, and they were chanting, we will not be replaced, Russia is our friend, and also a Nazi slogan, blood and soil. And it was an unhooded rally. So it wasn't a hooded rally of the KKK or anything of that nature, but it was an unhooded rally. And it really showed the response to the removal of a monument, not necessarily the expunging of something out of a textbook, uh, not the removal of something from a museum, not the banning of words, but the response to removing a monument that was erected in honor of dead men <laughs> who did dastardly things, who may have been good people in some aspects, but who supported something that completely disenfranchised and harmed an entire ethnic group of people in our country's history, that the response is so vitriolic. There were men who stood outside of certain monuments and called people the N-word, that uh, hollered racial epithets in, in certain cities. It's, it's just shocking to see the response. And so when I see that type of response, regardless of the complexities, and listen, there are civil war historians who who use all kinds of words that I don't understand and, and talk about different ways in which the Civil War was unjust, or, or they have so many different opinions. And whenever I bring this topic up, people just want to give you these arguments. I'm not really interested in the arguments. What I'm saying is if anything causes that sort of reaction, it could be an idol. Mm -hmm. And when you think about idols erected in worship, you know I can't help but think of Exodus 32. Mm -hmm. And in Exodus 32, what happens? Moses is on the mountain communing with God. And then the people of Israel, they come together and they form a golden calf. And so the people just go along with it. The people who Moses put in charge, they Aaron and others, they just go along with it. And so they erect this golden calf and they start worshiping. Now, the Israelites didn't, when Moses came back down, he didn't leave the golden calf up to say, you know what, we need to remember when we were when we were idol worshippers. Now he burned that joint. He he made them burn it in the fire. Why? Because that is a false idol. And one thing we have to understand is idolatry makes us irrational. Like idolatry will cause us to think and believe things and cling to things. And this is this is I think the way in which we're being irrational. Idols will tell us that if you take me down, then you're erasing history. How is that possible? Move the monument into a museum and then you put it in proper context. That's it. Just move the monument into a museum. Then you can give an explanation. You can say what you need to say. Now, I think you should also have slavery museums as well. In the same cities where this was, was promoted, I think you should have slavery museums in every single one of those cities. I don't have any problem with that. Um, or if you erect, a, you know, people have said erect a similar monument towards slavery, those who have been lynched in those cities. I understand what you're saying, but what I'm saying is it's not, it's not erasing history to remove a monument in a public square, not in an inconspicuous place, in the public square. There are monuments in my city that are erected to the Confederacy. And, and when you walk past it, you don't really see that. You don't know what it is sometimes. 
But if you see a person and you know exactly who that is for, that could be traumatizing to your brother, traumatizing to your sister, and it could also impede the racial unity that we say we want so much. So take the monument, put it in a museum, then we have proper context. I mean, this seems pretty straightforward to me. As far as the rally goes, this is one of the most frustrating things about working in in race is just like that monument like you said like sometimes you pass by and you don't you don't even really realize the significance of it we get used to the racism in our midst and with this rally it, it, the 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 thing that immediately jumped out at me i mean number 1 the connotations with the kkk are just clear all i needed was was sheets and a burning cross right this was at night these were torches they were as far as i could see all white folks mostly men right. and so um that jumped out at me then the next thing that jumped out was where do they go after this what what are they going to wake up in the morning talk about it and talk about it. what jobs are they going to go to you know are they are they the, are they your dentist are they your garbage collector are they uh your pastor your elders nursery workers we can't overlook the fact that racism dwells in our midst in an everyday basis and we get so used to its presence that we don't even notice it anymore. And and it becomes almost comforting for us to see a picture of, of this rally in Charlottesville mm. because then we can point to that picture and these men holding torches and yeah, say, well, yeah. they're the real oh, racist. That's racist. Yeah, that, you know, yeah. we're, we're not, you know, that's racism. But what that does is it only identifies racism in its most extreme and visible forms which then gives a pass to the way racism manifests itself in everyday behaviors and interactions. And everyday people. I think the, the mindset many of us have is that the people who attend that rally are folks walking around with Nazi emblems on their t-shirts or you know thick heavy boots or whatever stereotype you wanna attach to them. No. And some of them do now. Let me yeah, just some tell you, of them some of them do. do. They are they some of them are, are are bold and extreme with it, which, again, gets to the unmasking part. Right. Isn't it? Right. Isn't it somehow symbolic that they don't have to have hoods anymore? Yeah. And I don't know. That Why are they so crazy? The KKK. Yeah. But but we've said for a long time that the kind of language that's thrown around in the public square, especially by political leaders, creates an atmosphere where rallies like this are no longer hidden. They're no longer something yeah. to be ashamed of, uh, but they seem to be much bolder and much more brazen now. So Absolutely. all that's going into this, it, it, it's it's complicated, but it's not complicated. And I just, I, I think one of the labors that, that I frequently engage in, in terms of racial work, is trying to identify Look, these extreme cases are easy to see, but understand it works itself out every day in small ways. And yes. if we don't combat and confront those things, then we'll see these bigger things pop up more and more. Yeah, that's so good, Jamar. And I think that's a good word to end on. And, you know, we have to remember that we we 
are not wrestling against flesh and blood and we're not wrestling against the KKK or any sort of uh, white supremacist, white nationalist, alt-right organization, but there are principalities and powers at work here. So it's incumbent upon us to stay prayed up and it's incumbent upon us to always have our armor on. And if I feel brave enough one day, I'll tell y'all about my situation <laughs> that you saw on Twitter. But um, I first need to talk to a counselor and kind of work through that stuff. But if I if I feel up to it, uh, I'll definitely talk about it in a coming episode. Um, thank you guys so much for reaching out to us and continuing to support the podcast. We want you to share it with your friends. We also want you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes. That really helps us out. And also subscribe on the Satchel app. Our award-winning producer, Bo York. He has set that up. And also, Bo York, it's really interesting that I bring this up because I failed to mention it in the previous episode, but Bo is taking a step back, um, just taking a little break. He has done so much for the podcast, so just taking a little break over the summer. But we have Josh. He has been producing the podcast. Shout out to Josh. Thank you so much for your work. Um, Josh Heath, correct, Jamar? That's right. Appreciate you, Josh. Josh is amazing. And so thank you so much, Josh. So give him a shout out as well um, to continue the award-winning tradition of production <laughs> at Pass the Mic. We also want you to follow us on Twitter at underscore Pass the Mic. Tweet us, DM us, do all that good stuff. And you can join the private Pass the Mic Facebook group by going to facebook.com, typing in Pass the Mic and requesting to join. If you have requested, don't worry. You will get in in good time. We're just making sure that we're not overwhelming our wonderful moderators. Wonderful moderators. <laughs> with, with thousands upon thousands of new people. So thank you guys again for listening to this episode and we'll see you soon on the next Pass the Mic. Pass the Mic. <laughs> Bro, you silly. <laughs> You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit pottery.com. That's P O D A S T E R Y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.